Good morning. Good morning and welcome. Welcome this morning to Grace Bible Church. Every Lord's Day, we gather to worship our God in heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We, here at Grace Bible Church, we take worship seriously in that we desire our worship to be informed by God's Word. We live by the truth that God's Word is His revelation about Himself to us. The Apostle Paul declares in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The word inspired literally means God-breathed. At Grace Bible Church, we believe that God, that His Word, God's Word, has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter gives further information regarding that process when he says, but in 2 Peter 1, 20, 21, he says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Therefore, Scripture is the work of the Holy Spirit revealing the Godhead to us. The Holy Spirit also illumines God's Word as we teach it so that we can understand the things of God. In John 14, 26, Jesus said to His disciples, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In John 16, 13, Jesus promised... But when He, the the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. We must recognize then the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in helping us understand spiritual things. If you turn very quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul had told them that that preaching a crucified Savior was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And in 1 Corinthians 1 2, 4 and 5, he affirmed this. He says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, I think Paul's words in this chapter are helpful because as we consider the spiritual battle being waged around us, uh, they're, they're helpful to us because we understand that we're not to be swayed by worldly wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7, he says, Yet we do not speak wisdom among, or we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now, there's a lot packed into those two verses. I want you to notice that Paul wants them to know that he speaks God's wisdom that has been made known to them from God before the foundation of the world. This wisdom has been decreed by God and hidden from man until the appropriate time. And this wisdom, by the way, is from above, not from below. 
In 1 Corinthians 2, 8, 9, he says, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God prepared for those who love him. In other words, Paul is saying that those who crucified the Lord of glory did not understand God's wisdom, which has now been revealed by the apostles and prophets through the work of the Holy Spirit. Just listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 2, 10 through 16. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God... No one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Listen to this. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are, they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Then he says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The MacArthur Study Bible says that this, this, the wisdom that saves, which man's wisdom can't know, is revealed to us by God through His Spirit. He makes these things known to us by revelation, by inspiration, and by illumination. The natural man, the unconverted, who lacks spiritual life or supernatural life, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. But as Christians, those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, but if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you so that you, can, so that you can understand God's wisdom which has been revealed on the pages of Scripture. Now, you might be wondering what I'm getting to. Last week, I introduced some material about God's eternal decree that caused some questions. Some struggled with it. Some were thankful for the Quite frankly, I expected those reactions. I I expect this type of feedback as I teach difficult doctrines. But here's my encouragement to you. Whether you agreed with what I said or whether whether you did not agree or struggled with what I said, I urge you not to take anything at face value. I urge you to make it your habit to search these things out for yourselves. I want you to be Bereans. You know, the the Bereans in Acts 17, they examined the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. I want you to take that time and uh, take the time and look through and see whether these things are so. And don't be afraid to ask questions. In terms of God's eternal decree and how that relates to evil, perhaps we should, should all have John Newton's response, ultimately. He says this, Many have puzzled, uh, puzzled themselves about the origin of evil. I am content to observe that there is evil and that there is a way to to escape from it 
and with this I begin and end, end quote. Having said that, as we consider difficult doctrines, I would like to give you some, some guidelines as you, to, for you to follow as you study these dif difficult theological concepts. This morning, our men had a discussion about uh, the election of God and the foreknowledge of God. And I, I just and we we discuss these things and and these uh, these concepts I think are helpful as we have those kind of discussions. Now I borrowed these from uh, my theology professor in at TMS, uh, Dr. James Mook, and he calls these his theological dicta. And I just borrowed a few of them here. I think that are especially helpful for our body here at Grace Bible Church. He says this for, first one: receive your theology from above. Don't build it from below. Receive it from above. Don't build it from below. In other words, use the word of God, rightly interpreted, to understand theology. Focus on what is true, not what you want to be true. You understand that? So as we listen and as we consider what the word of God says, we need to, we need to take it as truth and not, not read into it what we want to be true. Second, revere the triune God in interpreting scripture. God must be seen as eternally, eternally transcending man. Said another way, we are not like God. We are not like God. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, or will he not make it good? So we need to understand that God transcends us, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. We can't fully understand here on this earth. Number three, because God is who he is, he does what he does. Because God is who he is, he does what he does. You see, God's actions are wholly based on his character, or based in his character. Let me say it this way. God is not good because he does good things. Do you understand that? God is good, because, or God does what God does is good, that is, because he is good. He is the embodiment of all that is good. God is not loving because he does loving things. Everything God does is loving because God is love. Does that make sense? It turns our, it turns our thinking around. So that when I, I see something that I don't quite understand... I can make the assumption that what God is doing is good or what God is doing is, is loving because he is good and he is loving or he is good and he is love. Number four, possibly both and, not either or. Then he says this. This is my professor in a TMS. Beware of the forced choice. For example, God is love, therefore he cannot show his wrath. Another example would be God does not wish for any to perish, therefore he will ultimately save everyone. You see, that's a forced choice. We, don't, we need to beware of that. We must understand that both realities are true. God does not wish for any to perish, but many will reject him, and they will be judged for their rejection. Now, here's a principle I want us to live by. <clears throat> I'm, I'm encouraging you to live by this. This helped me so immensely as I was thinking through these concepts, as I think through these concepts. When there's a tension in scripture, 
when there's a tension in Scripture. Admit the tension. Affirm both aspects as true with total confidence. We can do this because we know God's word is truth. And ultimately, God knows all truth about himself and about reality. And God has revealed both sides of the coin, if you will. And remember, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So, what are we to do when we see these these tensions in Scripture? Well, we don't try to solve them. We don't try to solve them. We accept both as true. And to do other sides, to do otherwise, that is, will result in denying one or the other or both. And the result will be heresy. So, ultimately, we only reject real contradictions. Now, let me give you an example of this in Scripture. Divine sovereignty and human accountability. We've talked about that a lot in the last week. God is completely sovereign over the lives of humans. He directs all things according to his will and has unconditionally ordained that some would be saved. We can see that in Ephesians 1.11. We can see that in Romans 8.28-30. Yet, people will be held accountable for rejecting Christ. They will be held accountable for their own decisions and their actions. But there's many more of those tensions. But the idea here that I want you to understand is, as an example, who, who sanctifies us, God? Or, or do we, as, I mean, who's, who does the work of sanctification, God or us? Well, the Bible affirms both. And we don't try to solve that tension. Now, I hope you'll consider these things as we return to our passage in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. So let me pray, and then we'll go back, and as we continue our series, uh, we have called Preparing for Battle. Let me pray for us. Gracious Lord, we thank you this morning for your goodness to us. Father, I pray that these words, these encouragements would be helpful. I pray, Lord, that you would, through your Spirit, Illuminate your word to us so that we may understand these things. Father, I pray that we would see that your word is truth. And we would love it. That we would revere it. We would trust it. And we would live by it. In Christ's name, amen. text in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the arrows, flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
On September 21st, 1971, David Vetter was born with severe combined immunodeficiency. SCID is a hereditary disease which significantly weakens the, the immune system. Individuals with this disease are, are abnormally susceptible to infections. Exposure to typically harmless pathogens can lead to their death. And only boys can, can contract this disease. And David's older brother, who was also born with SCID, had, was, was uh, born and died only at seven months old. When David's mother learned that, he, learned that he was a boy, so he was susceptible to having this disease, the doctors told, him, told her that he had a 50-50 shot of, of actually having the disease. So she, they, they actually they offered to abort him. But instead, she chose to give birth and fight for his fragile life. When he was born, he was placed into a NASA-designed isolated containment system. In other words, he was placed in a bubble. The only known cure at the time was a bone marrow transplant, but it was determined that there were no, there were no exact matches available for David. The doctors had hoped also that he would grow, outgrow the disease by the age of two, but he did not. Therefore, he was forced to stay in his bubble. Now, in the media, Vetter was referred to as David the Bubble Boy, and I think there was even a movie made that was somewhat about him. This was a rep reference to the clear plastic bubble which protected and preserved his life. Now, David lived most of his life, sadly, in this plastic bubble, but for the first few years, he even stayed, mostly stayed at the Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. And during his latter years, he was able to stay with his parents at home. His parents and doctors ensured that he could do many normal things, such as eat, sleep, get an education, play with toys, and, and even watch television. NASA engineers were even able to construct a special suit similar to a space suit that allowed him to move around and be, even be held by his parents. Now, his parents, of course, still hoped for a cure, at age 12, they tried an experimental bone, transplant, bone marrow transplant, and he died just a short while later of cancer. Today, children with SCID actually can lead normal lives thanks to the therapy made possible in part by David's own blood cells. I read one report from 2011 that said 14 of 16 children who received this therapy are living full lives. Now, as you know, our bodies are constantly bombarded by viruses and bacteria. Therefore, God designed them with a robust immune system which can fight off many of these pathogens. In David's case, a gen genetic problem led to a severely compromised immune system that did not have the power to fight even the more innocuous bacteria and viruses. In his case, this condition led to an early death despite the valiant efforts of his doctors. But here's the point. Did you know that the designer of the human immune system has also designed a spiritual armor for the believer to be protected from spiritual danger? Just as David's mother, mother and doctors willingly and by, might I say urgently placed him in a bubble to protect him, the believer must willingly and urgently put on God's armor for protection against their spiritual enemies. If we neglect to put on the full armor of God, then we are, in fact, very vulnerable to the evil of this age. When we neglect 
the armor, when, when the Christian neglects their armor, seeming, or God's armor, seemingly innocuous things like social media and television and whatever else goes on can infect us. In our passage today, we'll continue to look at the process of donning the armor of God, which protects us from evil. Now, at the very beginning of this series, we looked at how rulers and authorities, the demonic realm, had directly impacted the church at Ephesus. The church and the city sat in the shadow of the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. Therefore, the church had contended with demonic activity from the time it was planted by Priscilla and Aquila and firmly established by Paul. In Acts 19.16, when Paul arrived at Ephesus, a man possessed by an evil spirit leaped on some Jewish exorcists and gave them this massive beatdown. In doing this, the evil spirit said to them, I I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? Now, this incident became known to all. And as a result, the name of the Lord was being magnified. And Paul's gospel efforts were making great inroads into this community of the occult. In Acts 19, 18-19, many were coming to believe in the name of Jesus and were even burning their books that contained magic. You can be assured. You can be assured that the demonic realm was not pleased that Paul had stormed their stronghold. And the rest of Acts 19 records some major trouble caused by a man named Demetrius who stirred up the people against Paul. Clearly from those accounts, we can see the demonic activity surrounding the church at Ephesus. And when we consider the importance of Ephesus to the gospel mission, we can understand why Paul had great concerns for the Ephesians. Now, earlier in this letter, Paul had reminded them that they had been given a glorious salvation by the Father. Uh, They were now in the Son. According to Paul, they possessed the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him on the Father's throne in the heavenlies. They had been freed from their enslavement to their trespasses and sins by the blood, by the blood or the atoning blood of Christ. They were now in Christ and had been raised up with him and seated in the, with him in the heavenlies. But God, being rich, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, uh, that he, he raised us up, raised us up and seated us in, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, they had been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And they, were, they were sealed and secured by the Holy Spirit, which meant that, they, that the demonic realm certainly could never indwell them. And they could not snatch the, the Ephesian believers from the Father's hands. There was, no, there was no danger of losing their salvation. But they could attack them. They could attack just as they had attacked Paul. And they could deceive them, as as they had done with many. You see, as believers, we have been been placed right square, smack dab in the middle of a cosmic conflict. Therefore, we need to put on the full armor of God to be able to resist the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is not a flesh and blood fight. It's a spiritual fight. It's a spiritual fight that you have been placed in the middle of. And it's against an enemy that we cannot see. In the words of John Broder, 
As an obedient believer, you are to stand firm in the strength of the Lord, to be sober in spirit, and to remain alert in order to resist the schemes of the devil. However, in all these all areas of your walk as a believer, you are incapable. You are incapable in your own strength and insufficient in your own resources to overcome the wiles and temptations of Satan. Therefore, you must put on the full armor of God to be an overwhelming conqueror in your continuing spiritual battle, end quote. When Ephesians 6.13, which we looked at last week, Paul reiterates the urgency for the Christian to take up the full armor of God, to be able to resist the evil of our day. In 14 through 17, he gives six critical pieces of armor for resisting. So you must first prepare by girding yourself with the belt of truth. Now, we briefly looked at this text last week, but I want to take the time to to take an in-depth look at each piece of the armor. Now, look at your Bible in Ephesians 6. 14. Paul writes, stand firm, therefore. Now, as we saw last week, when the Bible repeats a a phrase or a word, that's a a clue that it's an important concept, or in this case, a critical command. We, as Christians uh, that are in this uh, cosmic battle, we cannot miss Paul's repeated call to stand firm, to resist the satanic forces of the darkness. Now, in verse 14, Paul begins to explain how, as Christians, we are to do this, how we are to take up the full armor of God. Look back at your text in in verse 14. He says, having girded your loins with truth. Now, as we began to see last week, Roman soldiers used a belt to bind their tunic, which was similar to a a long robe. Now, the, the soldier used the belt to bind his tunic so that it would not get in the way during battle. Now this binding helped protect the soldier and gave him the ability to remain agile despite the bulky protection. As far as I can tell from research, the the belt of the Roman soldier was two to four inches in height. These belts were mostly made of leather and they had decorative metal strips. They probably had a, they may have had a buckle with some similarity to our modern belts. Uh, They also had attachments to to connect the sword to the belt, which was also, the belt was also connected to the breastplate, which we're going to see in a moment. Now, many of the belts had ornamental pieces attached to them. Uh, These pieces were often made of expensive materials such as gold, silver, or ivory. Therefore, they probably weren't there for protection. They may have represented the, the soldier's rank or awards that he had received. Now, in Paul's day, this is, a, this is an important point, in Paul's day, only soldiers wore these belts. Therefore, they, they may have functioned as a status symbol of their position and authority in the elite Roman military. It set them apart. That was the point. It set them apart, and it identified them in public as a member of the elite Roman military. Many of the soldiers, what I read was that even when they weren't in uniform, they would still wear the belt in order to identify as a soldier among civilians. Now, to help us understand this passage, we should recognize the five functions of this belt, these belts. Now, again, we need to be careful not to, you know, allegorize this, but I think it's helpful for us to understand what these belts function for. First, we saw, we've already seen that it was to bind his tunic, which was called girding up 
your loins. That was the, the idea, that idea of getting ready for battle. The second reason is to carry heavy packs while marching from place to place. These packs were attached to the belt to hold the load in place and move some of that load to the hips. Third, the third reason for the belt was to keep the breastplate, so the breastplate came down to keep the breastplate tight against the soldier's chest. The, the belt kept the breastplate secured in its place so it wouldn't ride up or hang loose. And fourth, the fourth reason that they had the belt is to bind his, his sword secure and ready at his side. Now, again, I don't think we should make too much of the individual functions except to say that all of this points to readiness and preparedness of the soldier. So when that belt was firmly secured in its place, it bound the tunic and the breastplate. It allowed him to move quickly and to carry heavy loads when required. And, and, and there's actually one other function that we, need, we shouldn't overlook. The belt clearly identified the man as a soldier, not a civilian. There's something different about this man. Uh, the word translated truth can refer to the content of truth. Uh, we... We certainly must be committed to the truth found in God's word, but I would argue, I would argue that putting on the belt of truth is symbolic of learning the truth of God's word. In other words, we must know, we must learn the truth to be prepared for battle. But Paul's call to gird oneself with the truth must be more than just gaining knowledge, as crucial as that is. Certainly, this belt of truth includes the content of truth found in God's word. And I would argue, but I would argue that Paul's quotation of Isaiah may give us a hint into what he's saying and what his actual meaning is. He quotes Isaiah 11.5, which describes the Messiah's ministry at his second coming. Now, you can look at that, but ultimately it describes, it says, when he comes, he will rule according to the truth. He, he loves the truth, and he will go to battle for the truth. He will judge in righteousness, and he will rule in fairness. The truth will guide him in all ways. He will have a knowledge of the truth, but he, but he will also be fully prepared with the truth. Now, here's the point. As Christians in this evil age, we are to have the same attitude of preparation. We are to love the truth. We are to be willing to go to war for the truth. We are to be fully committed to the truth. Uh, we must be ready and prepared every day to fight for the truth. Now, obviously, in order to do those things, we need to know the truth. But the point is, is that we need to be prepared and ready to fight for what we believe. Just like the soldier's belt set him apart from the rest of society, our full commitment to the truth sets us apart from the society that, that we live in. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, it is not so much content as it is commitment. Attitude is the real issue here. We have a heart for the battle. We are not to go out there unprepared. We got all these loose ends pulled together. We put on the, the, the belt that holds our weapons and marks us as soldiers. We have a heart for battle. We have counted the cost. The true Christian loves the truth and is ready to fight for the truth. We will earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We will go to battle for the truth, but we'll, 
We'll go to battle for our own spiritual protection. You will never win the spiritual battles that come day by day against your formidable enemy unless you are seriously committed to that victory, end quote. You see, the concern is for the Christian who is unprepared for the fights. Uh, these Christians that are unprepared for the fight, they just bebop their way through the Christian walk. They're content with living a life of compromises. They claim Christ as their Savior, but they never really take a stand for the truth. They, they're here today, and, and they're gung-ho for the truth at, at the moment, but they're nowhere to be found where the battle rages. Now, they profess to be Christians where the battle does not rage, that is. In the words of Martin Luther, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition of every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven, proved to be steady. It is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point of attack, end quote. Beloved Christians who have not girded their loins with the truth are content with infrequent worship and fellowship with the church. They're content with indifference toward the great doctrines of Scripture. They're content with, they're content with a shallow understanding of God's word. They are content with a shallow or non-existent prayer life. They are content with a superficial understanding of God's glory. They are content with a general apathy toward their own sin. And they're also content, unfortunately, with avoiding service to God and his people. If these things describe you, you are not prepared for the battle. You are not prepared for the battle. If this describes your life, then you're not ready. As the writer of Hebrews 12 says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Church, we live in days of great upheaval in our society. Good is called bad and bad is called good. We live in an era, uh, era of general fluidity where it's dangerous to claim that there are only two genders. We find ourselves fighting against unnatural claims where men and women do what is right in their own eyes. We are, we are to be in the battle. We are to, to, to be in the battle against these things. But the only way we can be in the battle is if we, if we gird ourselves with the truth. Sadly, Sadly, a vast portion of the church has already given up the fight on most of these fronts. Church, you are part of an elite force. A few years ago, I listened to an interview by a, a naval, Navy SEAL. Before this man became a, a SEAL, he had lost 100, 100 pounds in three months to, to be able to qualify. He accomplished this feat while significantly raising his ASVAB score. After he became a, a Navy SEAL, he decided to attend Army Ranger School where he graduated and received the top enlisted man award. After his career, he went on to complete 60 ultra marathons, triathlons, and ultra triathlons. He even held the Guinness World Record for pull-ups of completing 4,030 in 17 hours. Now, as far as I know, 
I mean, I'm fairly certain he's not a Christian. But I think we can learn something from him. After graduating SEALs training, he noticed that most SEALs backed off of their training and just began to live ordinary lives. In other words, which actually was the reason why he went to Army Ranger School, because he realized that that's what he didn't want to do that. In other words, they weren't, they weren't willing to continue to pay the price to be prepared for battle. And it bothered him. Beloved, as a Christian, you must be prepared for battle every day by girding your loins with the truth and by be, being willing to even die for what you believe. Secondly, you must prepare by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Look at your text. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, we must, must answer the question, what is the breastplate of righteousness? The text clearly shows that we are responsible to put it on. Now, like the other pieces of armor, the breastplate of righteousness must be worn, worn every day. In, in Paul's day, the Roman soldier wore the, the breastplate around their torso. Sometimes those, these were made out of leather or even could be chain mail. Uh, but the, the soldiers in, in Paul's day, they were mostly, probably most likely made from iron or another metal. According to one commentator, he wrote, <clears throat> this breastplate was not made from one solid piece of metal the way most of us imagine they were. Most of us, when we think a, of a breastplate, think of the armor that knights used in medieval England. We think of knights mounted on horses with their lances and broadswords swords and covered in armor from head to toe. But the Roman soldier's armor, armor had to be much lighter than that. Therefore, they used scale armor, uh, which was usually overlapping bands of metal tied together by leather straps. The scale armor was much lighter and allowed the soldier to run great distances. One commentator said the soldiers had to be able to run 24 miles in five hours with their armor on. In contrast, there's no way a medieval, fully armored knight could even run probably even five miles in five hours. But the, the purpose of this breastplate was to protect the vital organs like the heart and the lungs while in battle. It, it extended far enough down uh, to be able to protect their vital digest, digestive organs. A soldier who was injured in these vital ways or vital areas would likely die on the battlefield. And it would likely be a, an excruciating death. Therefore, the breastplate was an extremely critical piece of armor. Now look back at Ephesians 6.14. You could translate this verse, having put on the breastplate, which is righteousness. The uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible comes close to capturing this idea. It says, stand therefore with truth, truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest. The idea then is that righteousness is the breastplate for the Christian. Now the question is, what does Paul mean by righteousness? Well, he could mean imputed righteousness by which we are saved. This is the true righteousness which we have received from Christ. When we're saved, we're given the very righteousness of Christ. That's, that truth is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
In, in Genesis 15, God promised Abram a seed even though he and Sarai were barren. And the text says that he believed in the Lord, or he believed God, and he reckoned it to him. That would be God reckoned it to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham, or Abram at that time, simply believed what God said, and God considered him to be righteous. Salvation is that simple. Uh, Paul picks up on that very truth in Romans 4.22. Uh, he, he says, therefore, it is also credited to him as righteousness. In Romans 3.21 and 23, Paul writes, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Uh, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For believers here, for believers who are here, that, that's the most glorious truth that we can hear. God has saved us by grace through faith in Christ. For the, for the unbeliever, you need to know that all your striving can cease. You, you only need to believe in Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you need not your own righteousness. You need the very righteousness of Christ. And you get it by simply believing that Christ died for your sins on the cross. And he, has raised, he, was, ra he, he was raised from the dead, conquering death, and sits at the right hand of the Father. Church, salvation has always been by faith in God's promises. And those who believe have received God's imputed righteousness. In the words of R.C. Sproul, when God counts somebody righteous on the basis of faith, it is not because he looks at them and sees that they're inherently righteous. Rather, they have been clothed by the imputation or transfer of the righteousness of Christ to that person by faith. The imputed righteousness of Christ is absolutely critical for the believer. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. You may have noticed that he wants the believer to put on this righteousness. Well, as believers, we've already been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The first, ver first verse of the great hymn of the faith, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy shall I lift my head. The idea that's being, that's being shown there is that we already have the righteousness of Christ. We have been arrayed with his righteousness. Therefore, I believe that Paul then is directly referencing the, uh, is, uh, that Paul is not directly uh, referencing the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's actually talking about righteous living or holy living. We can have everything put together and be ready to go in the, into the battle, but if we're not living a holy life, then we are incredibly vulnerable. This matches Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 5, 7, where he says, Do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly uh, darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. You, you may want to go into, you may want to get into the spiritual fray, but you better not if your life is not right before God. When I went to seminary, I would tell people that's what I was doing, and 
many of them would say, well, I don't think I could handle the academic rigor. I couldn't sit through those classes and write all those papers and read all those books. But let me tell you, that was not the hard part. The hard part was what they called the curriculum outside of the curriculum. The truly difficult stuff was the trials that God puts his men and women through when he intends to use them. He takes all those sinful tendencies and puts them into a blend, the blender of life to completely expose you. I thought it was over when I came here to plant this church. What I think what Paul is saying in this verse is that the, this, the breastplate, he's saying that the breastplate that protects us is our commitment to live a, a righteous and holy life. Beloved, I believe it will become more and more critical to live holy lives as the pressure of our culture increases. We're already seeing it. People are being forced to toe the line politically to keep their jobs. In that type of atmosphere, we must, we must live above reproach. We must live with short accounts before the Lord. We must be confessing our sins and turning from them. We can't court our pet sins, whether it's anger, sexual perversion, jealousy, whatever your pet sin is, you must forsake them. You must put on the breastplate of righteousness. If you don't, then you're going into battle without it. And you're in danger of being taken out. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 7 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Christian Christians in this, in this age, we are called to live holy lives. Uh, this, righteousness is the, this righteousness that we're to live is the breastplate which protects us from the accusations of the devil. This righteousness keeps us from easily falling for the schemes of the devil. I remember as a young Christian that I would regularly fall into bad situations. They came about, these situations came about because of my poor decisions and my lack of personal righteousness. You see, when we play around with sin, it is inevitable. It is inevitable that we will get bit. Here in 614, Paul calls for the Christian to stand for the truth. And to do so, we are to live righteously in this evil age. Next time, we're going to look at the shoes which God provides for our feet. But until then, brothers and sisters, I, I pray that you'll consider these commands so that you will be fit for the, the spiritual battle that is raging around us. Let me encourage you with the words of J.C. Ryle. This is called Ponder the Real Gospel. He writes, Christ's death is the Christian's death. Christ's cross, cross is the Christian's title to heaven. Christ lifted up and put to shame on Calvary is the ladder by which Christians enter, the holy, enter into the holiest and are at length landed in glory. It is true that we are Christians, or sinners, sorry. It is true that we are sinners, but Christ has suffered for us. It is true that we deserve death, but Christ has died for us. It is true that we are guilty debtors, 
but Christ has paid our debts with his own blood. This is the real gospel. This is the good news. On this, let us lean while we live. To this, let us cling while we die. Christ has been lifted up on the cross and has thrown open the gates of heaven to all believers. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would come to see that you are a guilty debtor, that you owe a debt that you can never repay. You never repay it. But in Christ, Christ has nailed that certificate of debt to the cross. If you would just trust in him and trust in his sin-atoning death and his life-giving resurrection, you can be saved. You don't have to face his wrath. You don't have to face it. Trust in him. Look upon him. If you're a believer here today and you're walking in sin, maybe you're not fully committed. I urge you to put on the belt of truth. Gird up your loins with the truth. Be ready. Be prepared for the battle. I urge you to put on the breastplate of righteousness to live a holy life, to forsake sin, to turn from it. I urge you. 